Dave Chang is an avid student and fan of sports, music, art, film, and of course, food. With a rotating cast of guests, they have conversations that cover everything from the creative process to his guests' guiltiest pleasures. Follow The Dave Chang Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there, just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive, or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Hello, media consumers. This is the Press Box. Brian Curtis and producer Erica Cervantes here. We are closing out 2021 by thinking about John Madden, Super Bowl winning coach, broadcaster, pitchman to seemingly everything, and finally a video game czar who died Tuesday at the age of 85. Here to help us remember all the booms, the waps, and the doinks is our pal Jason Gay, sports columnist at the Wall Street Journal. How are you, Jason? I'm fine. Thanks, Brian. Happy New Year to you. I guess we're not there yet, but uh, getting there. We're right on the edge. Um, I wanted to start our free-flowing remembrance of John Madden here. Yeah. For people that know, and especially maybe people that don't, what was it like to watch a game that John Madden called? I mean, it just sort of felt like a sense of the moment. Uh, there was this, you know, feeling that if John Madden, especially when it was, you know, Madden and Summerall and later on Madden and Michaels were calling your team's game, that meant something. It just kind of gave a largeness to whatever contest it was. And, you know, football has in many ways never been bigger than it is now, but Back then, it just commanded a certain kind of mind share because it was, you know, most of it was over the air, of course. And, uh, you know, almost all the discussion about it was over the air. And somebody like John Madden loomed large in a way that nobody does today. I mean, now the world is just, you know, it's not to say there aren't stars and star telecasters, and the Tony Romos of the world and things like that, but he just was the king of the dinosaurs, so to speak. And, and he really was uh, somebody who, when he rolled into town with that cruiser, it signified that your team had arrived or this game was incredibly important. There's a couple of things I think that conspired to make him feel that way, apart from his obvious quality and obvious greatness as a broadcaster, which we can get into in a minute. As you point out, there is no Sunday ticket in the 80s. 
So you're going to get, you kind of this enter this lottery every week where you get your team's home game and you get something else and then you get Monday night football. So yes. if you happen to draw the Madden lottery number that week, if your team was good enough, yeah, that felt like just such a big deal. It sure did. And the other thing this corresponds with, and you know this well as a Cowboy fan, but it, his rise corresponds with uh, an era of significant NFC dominance. And he was inextricably tied to the NFC. He was the guy who was calling all those Niner games. He was calling all those Cowboy games. Um, you know, as a uh, as somebody growing up in New England, this is before the Patriots became what we know to be the Patriots now. That ship was not passing through too often. Uh, John Madden was somebody who, you know, occupied other elements of the world, other places. And you probably got to hear quite a bit of it. I felt like he lived in Dallas and Pat Summerall <laughs> actually did live in Dallas. And I felt like they just sort of parked the bus for like six weeks in a row in the early 90s. It certainly felt that way as somebody who watched football and consumed it. I just felt I knew more about Danny White than I knew about anybody in my hometown team. <laughs> but I felt that was part of his bigness was it was the NFC, this period where they're winning the Super Bowl every single year. But also the teams that are winning are in New York City, Washington, D.C., Dallas, San Francisco. Right. John Madden was not going to Buffalo all that much. Yeah. You certainly yeah. wouldn't go to Jacksonville, places like that. Like he was in these huge cities with big, old, famous football teams that were winning championships with big stars. Really an Avengers era, you know, to use the modern motifs uh, of what football was then. Uh, this was something where, you know, again, you had these iconic teams that were being built in San Francisco, Washington, Dallas. Um, you had the 85 bears, another NFC there team. They didn't win a lot of championships, but arguably the most famous Super Bowl champion in the last 40 years. Right. I mean, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Absolutely. And his kind of team, right. Kind of the, the spiritual sequel to the, to the seventies Raiders. Everything that he loved about football in one package, whether it was Mike Ditka or uh, Jim McMahon or Fridge Perry or Walter Payton. I mean, I feel like I could off the top of my head do all his, you know, testimonies for all these players. This was a Madden all team, an all Madden team unto itself as a Super Bowl champion. Oh, yeah. The whole roster. What is, there's a line in, in the piece you wrote for the journal about Madden that I that I thought was good and I thought really sort of helps us capture his aesthetic a little bit, like what he liked about football in addition to just good football. Madden loved hirsute centers, rumply ends, and roly-poly nose tackles. <laughs> and on any given Sunday, he'd make household names out of them too. You know, it's like, I always think of that era. He's very 80s, but I always think of it as a kind of 70s sensibility of pro football. It's Roy Blunt and about three bricks shy of a load. It's Dan Jenkins and semi-tough. It's this way of like you're looking at football in this very unjaded way and appreciating the physiques at the risk of sounding like Borat for a second, appreciating <laughs> the size differences between people, the funny names and nicknames they have. It's this very, it's not innocent. The back right? of the neck fat rolls, you know, yeah, the exactly. vapors coming off of the back heads while they're sitting down on the bench. He had a kind of a writer's eye, I think, for the game in a funny way, um, because he noticed those kinds of details. And you're absolutely right. He was somebody who I think very much um, 
changed the way that people looked at the lines of the game, right? You know, StarCraft was already fully in effect in the NFL. We had star quarterbacks and star running backs and wide receivers and so on. But he made names of the Nate Newtons and so on, people who were in the trenches, people who weren't getting their uh, name or number shouted unless it was a penalty usually in a game. Uh, he certainly, you know, brought some spotlight on them. It's it's interesting too because, and this point was made by a number of people in the aftermath of his death, but like the football audience is quite sophisticated now. I mean, you have, you know, whether it's your Ben Solak generation has grown up with incredible degrees of knowledge about the game, but you don't, at that time, people weren't completely consumed with it in the way that they are now. And a lot of the stuff that Madden was describing to people about, you know, what a nose tackle did was rather novel for its time. Yeah. And he was basically the only source. I mean, I remember in the early nineties, he was in love with Nate Newton, the kitchen yes. Cowboys yes. guard. And I remember yes. as a kid or, or, you know, kind of a high schooler, I guess at that point going, is Nate Newton like really the best guard in the NFL or is John Madden just obsessed with him? Like, I know he's really good, but I, I can't tell because there was no Ben Solak or no pro football focus to be like, actually, Nate Noon is the 18th best guard in the NFL. We yes. know those kind of things. Sure. And I think that, you know, toward the end of Madden's career, the kind of like corrective generation came coming for it, right? They were the people kind of saying, well, in fact, the way that he views the game is a little bit antiquated. Maybe he doesn't have the fastball he once did. But in terms of being evangelical for the game, in terms of widening the audience, in terms of sensing the moment, you know, a lot of people who wrote to me after uh, his death, mentioned one thing that they just felt like hearing his voice, never mind sitting down in front of the television and watching the game, just hearing it in the other room, whether based in a turkey or they're doing something else in and of itself felt like this ritual. And I think that speaks to an incredibly rare quality. There are only a handful of people who come close to his space. I would say, I, I think you and Bill were talking about this the other day, if there's anybody in his airspace. And I think the only people who are, are maybe some of the iconic baseball announcers because they have the same kind of ambient quality where you don't need the pictures, you don't need the full composition to understand their largeness around the game. So it's Vin Scully from that time. Yeah. It's, yeah. So that kind Carwell, of crowd. Maybe Johnny Most, you know, somebody like that. Yeah. I mean, Howard Cosell certainly for recognizability, <laughs> though not though not maybe the comforting sort of sense that John Madden would have given. And, and Howard was, you know, incredibly famous, but also in his era, wildly divisive. He was not somebody who was this you know, beloved Anchorman-like figure that Madden was. Actually, Anchorman isn't correct at all. He is the opposite of the Anchorman. He had none of that kind of like stentorianness that I think we would both agree is really overbaked in football media. I mean, there's still a lot of people who sort of grew up on NFL films and still want to do the war metaphors and still want to do the kind of like voice from the mountaintop. That wasn't what John Madden was. It was much more of a guy sitting next to you in the bar talking to you about what's happening in the game. It was not this kind of like holier than thou approach at all. I think that's exactly right. It's the NFL films steam coming off the heads and guy wearing the cape on the sidelines, but without John Facenda's voice, right? It's the same pictures, but just taken away down 
Yeah. You know, and your brain goes into all these kinds of crazy places when you're writing about, you know, tributes like this, but I was like, you know, it's sort of a Garrison Keillor quality to it or like Mm -hmm. a Calvin Trillin thing going on where like he did have this kind of like, you know, our town aspect to him. He was the narrator. He was somebody who was going to take you by the hand for three and a half hours and get you interested in Eagles versus Giants even if you didn't give a damn about either one of these teams or what the stakes were. I was thinking about before we came on, like the number of TV announcers, sports announcers in our lifetime that you could imagine as being one of your family members. Sure. As opposed to man on television. Yeah. John Madden, Bill Raftery now, I think has that kind of wily uncle feel, maybe Al yeah. McGuire in the eighties. Sure. It's a really tiny list. You know, maybe Dickie V is your crazy grandpa, I think is probably, you know, he <laughs> sure. knows. Like- and, the, and let's say something also about what television was in the 70s and, and for much of the 80s. It was the provenance of, of haircuts. Haircuts, okay? These were individuals who, you know, had incredible abilities to communicate over, you know, a camera to millions of people. But at the same time, there was an incredible priority placed upon look, aesthetic, smoothness right now in sort of the social media era the podcast era that everybody's got a channel era there's much more focus on authenticity and realness is appreciated in a way that it was they tried to strike it from television in the 70s and 80s they didn't want to look rough around the edges and madden was the counter to that he was somebody you know when 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 he put on that coat and tie for the game you knew that was the only time he had the coat and tie on that entire week. Okay. That was not, you know, if he had combed his hair once before he got on camera, that was the first time he was not somebody who, you know, had any kind of Ron Burgundy qualities. And there was a lot of that back then. No, absolutely. I know reading a bunch of the early profiles of him when he first became a big television star, they would always talk about how he combed his hair once a day. (laughs) <laughs> you know, versus yeah. the hairdos that were surrounding him in the TV universe. I think the interesting thing about that is when you talk about the smoothness and the kind of, you know, very televisionness of the 80s, is that he was in a way very anti-television with the way he talked, the way he scribbled, the way, woo, woo, woo. And also at the same time, an absolute genius at television and clearly mm-hmm. understood the medium to yeah. a degree that almost nobody else in sports did yeah that's just so funny to me like to be both of those things at the same time yeah i know a lot of people got a chance to see the the fox documentary that they did on christmas you know before he passed away but they reran it the other night after his passing um and one of the more interesting things in it is you know he didn't want to do this he was not somebody who was raising his hand to do television immediately after he retired from coaching Um, He had to kind of get talked into it. He did it kind of as a trial. And it wasn't until actually having the experience that he said, okay, this is it. I found what I want to do. And I think there's a through line of a lot of people who end up being wildly successful in television aren't necessarily people who are striving for it right out of the box. They have to be kind of talked into it because they have that thing, that sort of, you know, that it quality or whatever Q factor, whatever it is. That is not something that you can teach, and it's certainly not you can not something you can just simply look in the mirror and achieve. Yeah, and with him, it's it's so many different things that made him good at TV. One is just being funny and knowing you know funny things to say and the right things to say. And the other thing I think is just matching his voice to the pictures 
in an amazing way when watching all these clips online like you know it's that kind of basically what's the equivalent of b-roll during a game where the play's over and the camera's just watching something you're seeing like the third replay which is kind of a funny element of the play he can yeah. just speak to a picture yeah as well as anybody can and again you know not to just dump on people like tony Romo or whomever but he just had this improvisational quality of yeah. see picture say thing that matches picture and enhances picture that I just have never seen since. Right. And, you know, candidly, I haven't gone back and watched a ton of like, you know, pre Madden tandems to sort of get a sense for exactly how it was beforehand. But one of the things that seems very clear about his success was that like no one else before he figured out what you could do in the rhythm of the game. And people are always trying to figure out well, why is football just so much more phenomenally popular than any other sport in America as a television sport. And a huge reason of it is the television rhythm of it. It's not a sport where there's a tremendous amount of action. The journal famously did a story a decade and a half ago where it takes about, it's about 11 and a half minutes worth of actual on-field action over the course of three and a half hours. And yet it has this kind of ebb and flow where somebody like a John Madden can get in there and serve as this chorus throughout it and really form a bond with the audience because you can inform, you can elucidate, you can replay, you can do all, you have all this sort of new gadgetry. And I, I think a big part of this too is that, you know, we all kind of made the dutiful mention of the Telestrator in our appreciations of him. That was brand new technology. That yes. could have gone wrong. <laughs> like he could have just been somebody who, you know, rejected it and said, you know, he certainly had the status at that point to be like, yeah, I don't want anything to do with that. But he embraced it. He made it his own to the point where you see anybody do anything comparable to that. They're just doing the Madden, you know, from then on out. So I think that he had the combination of the tools, but also really figured out what it was about football that made it so conditioned to having success as an analyst. You're saying having that big canvas after the play's over. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, look, we all love to like, let's, let's take a sport like basketball. You know, I think, you know, everybody likes to weigh in about like what analysts they like, what color commentators not working or whomever is great. I think that's a really hard sport to be an analyst of it because it's yes. just nonstop moving. The momentum is shifting all the time. You know, football is like, I don't know, it's like reviewing the theater. There's like an intermission. There are breaks. There are like, you know, they're literally commercial time baked into the thing. It's much more of a palette for people to have the uh, the opportunity to shine. Yeah. And I and there is a sense, you know, with any with any analyst play by play man team, it's always competition for airtime. They'll tell you it isn't. But in some sense, there's only X amount of time that you can fill up. And I thought it was yeah. so interesting that, you know, CBS rejected Vince Scully, the sainted Vince Scully, because he just talked too much for John Madden. He wanted that, to be the guy. He had an ego. And like almost every broadcaster does like, no, no, this is my game. And, and you know, they're like, no, no, we need somebody who's just going to be like, here you go, John. The floor right. is yours. And, and by the way, Vin would probably think they made the right call, right? I mean, absolutely. It was the person, you know, the, the Pat was sort of more chemically suited to being his, uh, his partner, because exactly that he sort of didn't need to feel the, fill the spaces in between. They weren't going to be competing for that. They were also just so, you know, um, different in terms of, you know, their tenor in terms of the pacing of their, I mean, I, one of the things I think was interesting about 
Madden is that for a man of his size, he actually got kind of a light voice. You know, it wasn't this kind of like, you know, roar or a roar or something like that that just sounded like, you know, from a behemoth. He he actually had kind of a lightness to his voice that was very cheery uh, and, 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 you know, sort of the gentle giant aspect to it. Hey, hey. And then Pat was, and then Pat was right here, first and 10. Yeah. No, Pat had a deeper voice for sure. They were such a funny combination. I just always thought, you know, as a kid and then, you know, as an adult, there was just something humorous about the two of them together, Pat, because he just said almost nothing, you know, first and 10, right? A great catch, you know, and then, but he was a really good counter puncher with John. So John would go, you know, we look at that, look at that. We're going to go here. And can you imagine that? And he would come in like, well, and hit the, hit the counter punch. And then they would go on to the next play. Like yeah. the rhythm was almost vaudeville in that kind of way they talked to each other. And one thing I got a kick out of in watching the Fox documentary is that, you know, we sort of, you know, at this point underappreciate how incredibly hard that transition is to go from a high visibility job in a sport to becoming the voice of the sport. And the graveyard is deep and long of people who have been, you know, given the world in terms of a platform to make it on television after very successful careers. And it doesn't work out for whatever reason. And he made it seem so seamless. And yet it's not a seamless thing at all. And we know many, many stars, many, many coaches. I mean, how many coaches can you name have made that kind of transition? Not, not, I'm saying like gotten anywhere near what he did. It's not a natural thing. This episode is brought to you by hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there, just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Did you, you have a sense of this question. Somebody asked me this the other day, but when we think about what Madden did for football, like what he added, you know, I don't know if he added to the audience because that seems impossible because the football audience is so big, but 
what he did for the sport over 30 years on the air. Do you have a sense of what that is? Are you, are, are you referring, I think it was uh, Peter Schrager asked if he's the most influential person in the history of football. Was that what you're referring to? Yeah. What I would say what he did for the sport. Did he make us enjoy it more? Did he make us enjoy it in a different way? Or if to take Schrager's thing, how did he influence it? It's a, it's an interesting question. It's certainly a provocative 2020 television question. I don't, you know, look, I think that if John Madden didn't exist, we would have had something exciting to keep us watching football. I don't think it, you know, football was like, you know, on its way out and he brought it back. And I think there are probably, you know, innovators and people behind the scenes who are developing contracts with networks and things like that, who had, you know, <laughs> theoretically much bigger hands and, and these things happening. But I definitely think he pushed it to another level. There's no question about it. And I think that the proof is in, he's not been replaced. There's nobody who occupies the same territory. I mean, Romo has come along and, you know, become a fascination and gotten a huge money deal and so on. And, and, the, and, the, and the network deals are bigger than ever, but nobody kind of grabs people by the shirt tails or rather by the collar in the way that John Madden did. And is that just because it's impossible because we're in a different era of media and there's no way somebody can be that big merely by calling a football game? I want to say so, but football is one of the few things where, you know, the numbers are, 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 you know, everything is down. We know this, right? Every, you know, like fewer people watch the Oscars, fewer people watch, you know, the world series, fewer people watch the Super Bowl. you know, even football, you know, the numbers are actually coming down a little bit, but proportionally football's just never been bigger. It is the most dominant television entertainment form there is, and nothing is close. So I do think that there is an opportunity where there somebody who is just, you know, hyper talented up to, to, to jump in there and be that person. But actually what I think it is, is instead of it being one individual, it's just this whole economy that swirls around the sport from your Adam Schefter's to mm-hmm. your Kevin Clark's to, you know, all the betting agencies and all that kind of stuff too. Did Kevin's uh, agent ask you to mention him in that uh, roll call of people who are influencing the way we think about the sport? No, I'm just, I'm just. I, 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 uh, I did, and yeah, I, I spoke to Kevin's agent before the Danny. <laughs> Danny Rose was his agent. <laughs> I was trying to think of the question, like, what if you just had a replacement level announcer on CBS? In the 80s, and we've had plenty of replacement level announcers even calling Super Bowls over the years. Like John Madden had gone back to coaching. Let's say, let's say yeah. you want to go coach the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, which by the way, he got a billion offers to do yeah. as soon as he left the Raiders. I just think probably what he did in the end was lay out this welcome mat for football and sort of bond people to the game in a really, really happy, joyful way. You know, you and I have watched enough pro football and written enough about it that pro football is hard to love. It's easy to watch and hard to love a lot of the time. Sure. There's a coldness to it. There's a hugeness to it. And he was sort of the welcome mat at the Death Star, right? Come on in. It's fun here. Right. I would add another aspect to it. There's a sameness to it. I think that there is a real sameness to the NFL product to his detriment. I think that like, 
you know, they move the Super Bowl around, but once you sort of step in the perimeter of it, it could be any old city. They do it the same way wherever they go. And there are very little things that signify that this is going to be a little different this year. And like a lot of people, you know, there's just great temptation in media to just replicate the formula over and over. It's why people like you and I went bonkos about the Manning thing, because at least it was something different. At least it was something that challenged the status quo. Um, I think there's no question about that. And I think that for somebody like him, you know, he had the benefit of it didn't really matter if he succeeded or failed because he was always going to be John Madden. He was always going to be a guy who won a Super Bowl before the age of 40. And I don't think it was the kind of thing where or did he win it before the age of 40? I don't know. If he, right around. Might that, want to right? Fact check me. But right around that. He started at 32. He left at 40 two or 43, I believe, but the Super Bowl happened in the 76 season, but, you know, he was always going to be a high demand person. You know, he had another life. I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about him too, is that, you know, he had this interior life that pretty fascinating. Um, you know, he had, you know, a lot of people who sort of were interested to learn that he had an apartment at the Dakota that he, uh, Bought from Gilda Radner. Amazing. He was a bi-coastal man. He owned a great deal of, uh, you know, Bay Area property. He was somebody who had interests in other things. He, of course, as you wrote about, was a college educator. I think he was going to be fine whether or not television worked out for him. So it didn't put him any pressure on him to just try to replicate formula. Oh, that's that's interesting. You do you do talk about sort of doing the same thing. Do you remember the Baby Madden movement in television? where the networks were trying to clone Madden and come up with younger versions of him. You're going to have to give me a name or two, because I mean, again, like watching the Fox thing, like, you know, like Parcells, like people were betting the ranch that Parcells was going to be this phenomenon on television. And it didn't really turn out that way. And he ran screaming back to coaching very quickly. Yeah, no, it's like, I think Matt Millen is probably the sure. most successful one. He was friends with John. He was funny. He has a kind of funny in that same kind yeah. of unbuttoned, every man kind of way. I believe Bill Moss would have been who had a pretty short career long, you know, lowish profile yep. career on network. Yep. But there was this whole idea of where do we get our own John Matt? Yeah. I think first on TV and I've read some of the reviews from the early eighties. A lot of people are like, he talks too much. Sure. He won't shut up. This is not, we're not used to this, right? We're used to the analyst who is not as verbally gifted as him kind of sputtering out a few sentences and then shutting up and the play by play man takes over. Sure. And to defend, you know, the baby Maddens or whomever else had come in Madden's wake. I mean, the other part of this is that, you know, we talked about this at the top. Madden had this tremendous benefit to come along the sport at a time when all these iconic stars and teams were happening. He was the DJ at the time that the Beatles broke. He was playing Led Zeppelin one. He was playing the music that got people excited and sort of change the form. It's a, it's it's not terribly hard to make people care about the Joe Montana 49ers. Now, if you can be value add to that, you can be iconic yourself. But it's a lot harder to have the kind of success that John Madden had if you're calling lousy games and a lousy slate every weekend. He had the cream of the crop. He, you know, by you know, by the prime of his career, the biggest game of the week every week. Yes. And the value add to me is the explaining football part. Yeah. Because you could do, I think, and again, you and I are kind of working in, in more of what we think this is and what we know this is. But if we, we would just imagine like generic 70s football announcer, I think you could have been the funny, uh, you know, nickname dispensing version of that in the 80s with the 49ers and then the Bears and Washington and the Giants and been fine. 
But he decides to come in and says, you know what? I think football on television really sucks because it's not teaching people anything about football. And I want to change the camera angles. I want to develop the telestrator, as you said. I want to just make sure that we are actually teaching people real things about the game rather than doing this ex-quarterback gloss over, you know, oh, what a great pass by so-and-so. Well, why was it a great pass? Where was he supposed to throw it? Why, why, why did the line block well for him? And, who, you know, who missed their block and who got their block on that play? That, to me, is kind of the miraculous part about him because he could have been John Madden personality and not done any of that. And yeah. yet he added all that. And it has made broadcast. You watch Romo now, you watch Collinsworth, you watch Aikman. Like they talk a lot of football during a yeah. broadcast. And that became standard. I think another part of this too, and this is quite a farce, is that at the time, Sunday football was a different thing than primetime football. Monday night football occupied its own little space where it could be this kind of like loungy product. But Sunday football was a different thing. It was treated a little bit more augustly. It was not the kind of thing where like you were going to have, you know, three people in the booth, one of whom was, you know, saying goofy stuff. It was just a different kind of thing. And, 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 and I think that he brought some of that kind of primetime energy into a product on Sunday, which was much more traditional and stayed than what it had been on Mondays. And, you know, it's, it's funny because people, of course, say he shook up the, you know, the, the, the booth and he changed the way that people, you know, processed uh, television sports. I agree. But if you think he was the only person changing boundaries, go listen to any Monday night football broadcast oh from the heyday of that, because that was truly out there as a product. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, the way to think about him, and just a little bit in the piece I wrote is, is him and Cosell. Yeah. And it's not, it's because one, cause they were just so big, you know, the two biggest of that time, but also they just have such totally different ideas. Like Cosell was like, we are leaning into entertainment here. This yeah. is going to be like dynasty, right? It's going to be storylines. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be issues. Right. It's going to be everything. And John Madden says, I'm happy to do all that. I can do all that, but let's also just add in the football part of that. And, and not think that people are incapable. Cosell's whole thing was the people will watch this if I sell it to them, right? In a particular way. Man's like, I agree. I'm just going to sell it to them in the other way, right? I'm just going to make a little end run around this. Speaking of which, segue. Madden the salesman. Yeah. What do you make of that character? <laughs> I want to know how many light beer spots he actually did. It feels like he had kind of like an 80% participation rate for a good chunk of that. I went back and watched a bunch, as I'm sure many other people did. One of the most amazing things about the Miller Lite spots was that was were the group ones where they had kind of the, the Miller Lite all-stars. And let, let me get this. It's it's light beer, right? It's Miller. I want to make sure that I'm not offending anybody was Miller Lite. Yeah. Miller Lite. You know, Marv Throneberry's in there. They're not like putting around the Chiron Marv Throneberry. You're just supposed to know, okay? <laughs> You're just supposed to know who Ben Davidson is, who Billy Martin is, uh, you know, Euchre, of course, Madden. Um, they had these kind of players, and you know, that was probably, you know, he and 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 John got the button right on the ones that mm -hmm. he was in because he got to rip the screen in half. Um, it's interesting because we look upon it so warmly but he was probably 47 times more ubiquitous than baker mayfield is now and people give him nothing but grief for being on lots of commercials 
he would pitch anything. I mean, I would. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in the room with Sandy Montag and Madden when Tenacton came and said, "Okay, you've done beer, you've done hotels, you've done Ace Hardware. We've got the antifungal cream now." <laughs> Was Madden like an immediate yes for that? Like, oh, sure, tough acting, Tenacton, let's do it. Yeah, I mean, what a, I mean, I would love to read a story, and it's probably been done about the ad agency approach to light beer, you know, ads over time. I mean, you know, that was a huge part of my childhood, like trying to decipher what tastes great versus less filling was, but it felt like this very primal argument that I should probably have a position on. Uh, <laughs> you know, that and in those days, of course, you couldn't run liquor ads on uh, TV. So, so that was all we were getting, but um, they really packed them in. Have you seen this book that Frank DeFord wrote back in the day about the light beer ads? Has that okay. ever crossed your threshold? You, you saved that on me. I'm like, somebody should write about this. And of course, DeFord's done a book. DeFord I, I did. did it while starring in the Miller Light ads. <laughs> It was like it was like it was like the Jordan documentary on ESPN. You know, he was like, "I'm going to get a little." So he did kind of the socio-cultural context, a very bizarre document. But if anybody wants to know about the, and you know, I was going to put this in my piece, and you know, on deadline, I could not quite figure out the dates and didn't want to throw something bad into the universe. But I'm pretty sure John Madden does his first big Miller Light ad, the one where he's you know talking about, "Oh, I'm done coaching. I'm not. I'm not excitable anymore," and playing off his sideline personality with the Raiders and that kind of got helped get him the number one job at CBS. Ah. It was an announcer to add. I believe it was actually add to announcer. Right. Because everybody's like, Oh, that's the guy from the commercial. And he has this extra sheen of stardom on him. Right. Yeah. That's another thing that's kind of interesting about the, uh, you know, his career arc is that it was happening at a time when football, you know, it wasn't the national pastime that it is now, right? The seventies, you know, his ascension through the Raiders and the Raiders winning their world title in the 76 season. That was still a place when, you know, the NFL was behind baseball in terms of its, you know, national mindshare. It was certainly growing, but people who are Raider fans, they weren't, I mean, people who were Raider fans were following the teams, of course, but if you lived in New York city, you weren't watching 16 Raider games or 14 Raider games or whatever. No. I mean, you didn't have the kind of like ability to follow a team nationally that you do now, this kind of like era of the obsessive fan who knows everything about everything. It just was impossible technologically at the time. So like people were a little bit of a mystery. And so it sounds strange, but I'm sure it's hundred percent true that like the guy coached for 10 years in the NFL, won a Super Bowl, was a 32 year old prodigy. And it was a Miller light ad that put him on the map <laughs> for the networks. It was probably longer than the highlight packages of the Raiders that most people were able to see. Sure. In the seventies, at thirty seconds, forty seconds, whatever it was, uh, I'll end here, Jason, because you know you get the cultural references that I get because we're both old. Like yeah, there's no, there's yeah. no, this is not a pat on the back. It just means we're old. <laughs> but I love, I love the thing that Jim Gray told me one time because there's like two people in the history of television that walked away under their own footing yeah. and that also refused to come back under their own footing, and they could have come back at any time. Yeah. It's John Madden and it's Johnny Carson. People were okay. tweeting at me. What about Seinfeld? I said, have you watched television? Jerry's <laughs> back. Jerry, Jerry never left folks. He, sure. he, he's back. Those guys walked away and basically vanished for the rest of their natural lives. What do you think about the John Madden walk away? Uh, it's, it's really interesting. And it definitely colored the way that people processed his death. I felt because as a lot of people pointed out, 
you know, every obituary sort of had the obligation to mention that he had this like generation spanning fame of people who, you know, first grew familiar with him as the coach, people, most people who grew familiar with him as an analyst. And then this whole next generation of people who knew that he was the face or the name of this eponymous video game empire that, you know, changed football and video games. Um, but it didn't, you know, his career had a long tail for somebody who had stepped off the train. Uh, and it wasn't the kind of thing where he was coming back and doing events and TVs. He wasn't like hanging out. It's like, you know, like Chris Berman retired from ESPN, but I don't feel like he's left the orbit of ESPN. I feel like he's no. doing a good deal at ESPN. I still see him doing highlights. And so I don't feel like he's gone off and become a recluse. Man really did fall out of the public eye. In fact, I was fascinated to watch in the Fox doc, you know, it's just him sitting there talking, you know, real live 84 or however old he was at the time that they did the interviews, uh, John Madden, you know, sounding super cogent and fun and with it. And it was a beautiful thing to see, but we hadn't seen a great deal of it over this last bunch of years. It's amazing to walk away like that. It really is, you know, cause We've seen a lot of bad endings for announcers and a lot of garbage time. Yeah. And it's funny now that to look back and to think that people were thinking that Madden, like let's say 2000 to 2009 is which when he walks away from Sunday night football was garbage time. Cause it was so, it was so good compared to a lot of the unfortunate ending of a lot of announcers careers. Yeah. And there was a lot of people doing this thing where it's like, well, he, you know, we know linemen are big and athletic. Why does he have to go on and on about it? Like, no, no, he taught you that right. <laughs> in 1985. You forgot where you learned it. Can I ask you as our resident historian a question about his his arc? Because I I confess I don't know the specifics, but like, so he leaves CBS to Fox. He leaves Fox, not after 20 years at Fox, but after, I don't know, what, 12 years at Fox? Yeah, it was uh, about a little. Uh, yeah, I would say a little under, a little under a decade. I think he does under two contracts at Fox. Yeah, okay. He goes to people. Always think that he leapt to Sunday Night Football. Not true. He did Monday Night Football. What was that like? Was that like a? Was that a? ABC's like, we got to make this work. We need the pot best. Was this after Miller and everything, and and it, after uh, Kornheiser? So they tried to tornizers after. Yeah. They tried to get him in 94 when Fox did. Gotcha. And they, they had been one of the three Brinks trucks that were backed up into John Madden's front yard. You know, right. the, one, the one that I love is that Dick Ebersol and Jack Welch offered him a train car. <laughs> GE said, we'll build a train car to take you around the country, John. We, we got this. And John said, you know, I don't know if we can make the timing work quite as well as we can with the bus, but thank you very much for the, for the office. They tried to get him in 94. They didn't. They come back and they get him. And that was the, yes, that was post that's Monday night chasing its own tail, right? That's Monday night. Monday night was trying to create the, recreate the seventies for so long that they finally forgot about the seventies and just went and recreated CBS in the eighties. But did they already have Al at that time? Yeah. So was Al already in the fold for Monday night football for a decade plus at that point. He, he'd right. done Deardorff and Gifford. He'd done Dennis Miller. He'd done Boomer Esiason, if you remember that very quick experiment. That's and right. then that's Madden. right. Okay. That's what I'm, I'm, I'm sort of airbrushing over. So Al had had a number of partners, but then at that point, the move gets made to Madden. And how long does that go? It's like 
five years before they go to Sunday night. Yeah, and then ESPN, you remember, gets the rights to Monday Night Football. The the, the packages switch. Monday Night gets downgraded. ESPN gets it. Right. NBC creates the Sunday Night thing, and ESPN comes to John Madden. This is in Jim Miller's book, and comes to Alan Mills. Goes, you know, you guys are really good, but we feel like we've got another really good team, which is Mike Patrick and Joe Theismann. They're really good too. So we haven't made a decision yet, and both Al and John. I don't think I'm speaking at a turn here or like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> right here. Al Michaels and John Madden. You're saying we're one of a number of people you would think about giving the job to. And that is <laughs> adios. We're going to go create Sunday night football, which has been the number one show in America basically ever since. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it was amazing. It was amazing. I mean, that's the thing about John. He worked at four networks. He was the number one guy on four different networks. Well, you know that you had a very iconic career when they do this big documentary about you, and it's very clear they had a 100% commitment uh, from the guests that they asked to do it. I mean, it was, I, I was like, who said no to this thing? I mean, it was amazing. Can I say one? And I think it's only because he must have been booked, but did you see Terry Bradshaw on that documentary? I did not. And it occurred to me that like they went with Howie because Howie played for him. Or no, Howie didn't play for him, but Howie's a Raider. But Troy Aikman was on it. Yeah. And here's the thing about Terry that Terry, I think, has written about and Vern Lundquist told me about. Terry Bradshaw was the number two guy at CBS behind Madden. Yeah. And he was so frustrated that he couldn't get the number one job. He's like, I'm never going to be number one. I'm number two yeah. that he went to the pregame show so that he could be number one in a different way. Yeah. Like he was like, so this is blocked. I, I This is like the Supreme Court justice. And he had to go do a different thing. This is like talking about lightsabers with Yoda. You know, I'm sorry. I just, I just, I'll shut up. You're going to have to come on my bike racing pod so I can dance circles around you. (laughs) Jason Gay, you can read his column about John Madden at the Wall Street Journal. I'm Brian Curtis production magic by Erica Cervantes back next week for slightly changes topic. The anniversary of the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol with David Shoemaker and more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like Ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.